Welcome once again to Benchworld, a podcast designed to provide you with knowledge, experiences, tools, and ideas about venture capital, entrepreneurship, and finance. Interviews and conversations with top-notch global experts will take place every week, hosted by me, Hector Shibata, Director of Investments and Portfolio at AC Ventures, a global corporate venture capital fund an Associate Professor for Entrepreneurial Finance and Venture Capital. Don't forget to follow us for more content on Medium, LinkedIn and Twitter as ACB underscore BC. With no more to say, hope you enjoy this episode. So thank you so much, Vilas, for being with us today. How are you doing? I am well. Thank you for having me here. Great. So it's great having you here in, in, in this conversation. So thank you for joining. So today we'll talk about yourself, about Oyster, and a little bit about corporate governance as well. So let us start. Can you please share with us a little bit about your background? How did you become an entrepreneur and how do you like it? <laughs> okay, well, first off, uh, good morning to all of you, and uh, thank you for being here. And Hector, thank you for organizing this and uh, having me here. Um, so two parts, how did I become an entrepreneur and how do I like it? I'll answer the second one because it's actually easier. Uh, uh, I love being an entrepreneur. Uh, and uh, for those of you who have either taken the entrepreneurial ch challenge or are ready to dive into it, uh, dive into it heads first. It is perhaps the most rewarding uh, aspect, at least that's the way I look at it. Uh, to answer your question, I think it's something that I love, it's something that I enjoy. There's nothing that I would be doing other than being an entrepreneur. Uh, as they would say, the way you know that you're an entrepreneur is not what keeps you up at night. It's what, it's what wakes you up in the morning. Um, and uh, so every single day is an amazing opportunity as an entrepreneur to do something uh, and that's the way that uh, I look at it, right? Um, how did I become an entrepreneur? Um, so this is an interesting journey. Um, so uh, so I've, I've lived all over the world. Um, I was educated in India. Um, I was very fortunate to get into a startup that was doing payments. Um, uh, and that payment startup was acquired by Visa. Then I went to, and I realized that after spending many years at Visa, uh, I decided to join PayPal, and and this was at the time, for those of you who have read uh, about the early days of PayPal, I was very inspired by the PayPal Mafia. And for those of you who know who the PayPal Mafia, it's uh, it's everyone out there from Reid Hoffman to Elon Musk to Peter Thiel uh, to Max Levchin, uh, and I was there when the PayPal Mafia was still there and was about ready to leave. So it was very inspiring to see what PayPal could do and uh, when you put your mind to it and you work with amazing entrepreneurs, how quickly they move. Um, and from there, I, you know, staying at PayPal is when I first uh, came into Mexico, fell in love with Mexico, uh, saw the advantages of Mexico being uh, in North America, the the ability to, I know we're talking, going to talk about the, the ability to manage corporate governance with a U.S. side. Um, was something that I was really inspired by, which then led me to uh, to really at that point uh, join a startup as one of the first employees 
uh, of this payments company, which also happened to be acquired by Visa and see that see things firsthand, uh, but not as a co-founder, but as one of the early employees and then led me to, uh, to co-found um, Clip with Adolfo, um, then went on to really understand the entrepreneurial journey from a different side, more from a, a M&A standpoint, working for NASPERS, uh, but also leading technology teams and managing integrations and uh, and then coming back to a country that uh, I fall in love with and I see an amazing opportunity. Um, and I really think for all of you, Mexico's entering its golden decade uh, in terms of economically where this country will go to and uh, decided to come back and start Oyster. So I would say it's a little bit of, to answer the question, it's a little bit of domain knowledge and a little bit of uh, the right time and seeing other entrepreneurs firsthand uh, and really and really taking the steps to not rush, uh, but learning the domain knowledge really well. Uh, and I think that's a part of the entrepreneurial journey that I've really, really enjoyed um, is being really in a place of thorough understanding rather than rushing to it um, is the way is I feel like my path and why I also enjoy my current um, uh, career right now. Okay, great. <clears throat> It's an amazing journey, the one that you have had. So congratulations on that. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Oyster? Yeah. So Oyster is a um, Oyster is currently uh, uh, positioned as a, a neobank, uh, call it a challenger bank, uh, uh, serving uh, businesses. And this is a, a freelancer, uh, call it a micro, PME. Uh, all the way to a small and medium business um, that we're serving. Um, the vision of Oyster is very different than the focus in the initial go-to-market. And this is something that as entrepreneurs um, or, or, or um, uh, for those of you wanting to take the challenge, you always have to build a really good vision. So the vision of Oyster is a financial platform, right? But in order to build a financial platform, you need to start somewhere. And when starting, you have to find the, the path or the hard to scale problem that you want to scale in order to get to being a financial platform, right? That in Mexico happens to be a business bank account. And for those of you who attempted to get a business bank account or know friends who want to get a business bank account, it takes a very, very long time, sometimes as long as four to six months to get a business bank account. And the complexity rises if you if you open up a SAPI, which is an LLC. Um, and why is that? Just because the banks have been very slow. Um, and this is the classic, for those of you who read Clay Christensen, The Innovator's Dilemma, this is the chasm that the banks have not been able to quickly adapt to the changing needs of how quickly companies need to incorporate and set up a business bank account, Right. So in its current form, Oyster is a neobank and challenger bank enabling businesses to get a business bank account. In its vision, Oyster is a financial platform, and this financial platform is about using the cash flow of a business to help them discover better financial products to improve their business, because that is something that uh, banks have not been able to provide. And when you really think about it, cash flow is king, Right. Once you understand what is happening in a business, you understand the the nits and grits or the intricacies, as they would say, every business goes through uh, crests and troughs, you know, the business goes up and down. Um, and if you can find financial products that give them better longevity, 
you're going to improve the life of the business. And by improving the life of the business, you become the person that creates the ability for them to grow, right? Um, this is our core promise and this is our core manifesto uh, around where we want to go in our vision. And right now it is about solving that really hard pain point of enabling you to get a business bank account within five minutes. Okay, wow, that's, that's amazing. So, and obviously FinTech, it's a very regulated industry. And it's a very local industry. So it's completely yeah. different. The industry in Mexico, vis-a-vis the U.S., vis-a-vis yep. Israel or any other country right. in the world. As you were thinking about Oyster, what were your thoughts around regulation? What were your thoughts about the legal aspects? Yeah. So very good question. Um, so one thing that I think everyone should re realize is that regulators are actually people that are more closely in touch with each other than you could actually imagine. Uh, regulators are like, you know, it's almost like, you know, they have like, a, you know, a small group of people that are constantly talking and interacting because why? Because regulators are looking for patterns of things that have developed in other countries as a way to adapt and localize that for the market, right? So it's not that the Mexican regulators are not talking to British neobanks, they're not talking to Israeli neobanks, are not talking to US banks. Regulators are actually very, very diverse and very uh, open in their ability to absorb different forms of information and find what's right for the country, right? Uh, because the act of regulation is a fine balancing. So I just want to talk about regulation and then how we had always to balance that. So regulation is a fine balance between openness and protection, right? You, you cannot tilt the boat on either side, being too open and actually affecting consumers and being too closed and not giving consumers the ability to have that spirit of innovation, right? So that's the way that the regulators think about it. What do regulators enjoy? Regulators enjoy people that have really understood that balance and enable them to shine as they look at startups that they like as a way to show how they can be innovative and also protective, right? So it is a job of the entrepreneur to understand and live in the shoes of a regulator and see how they can position that company as an advantage that regulators can see to bring value to market, right? And this is exactly the thing that we at Oyster did, right? So the difference that we have at Oyster is that we did not depend on any other player to build our own core bank. So the first nine months of Oyster I built a core bank uh, from the ground up. Why? Because a core bank is your ability not to be dependent on an outside company that is coming into Mexico that doesn't understand the Mexico regulators, that doesn't understand the market to adapt to the market. The next thing is education, right? You need to educate the regulators on why what is it you're building is above and beyond what anything else is available in market. Remember, it is you know, to, to work with a regulator, you need to lobby. You need to not lobby for what is not untruthful, but what is truthful, right? And truthful basically says is exposing your kimono and exposing what you're most afraid of because when you actually can expose your kimono, you are being truthful and regulators love trust, right? You have to build trust and trust comes from willing to share information. And this is the approach we've taken. Um, so the approach to regulation is my general philosophy around building fintech startups is I never build a fintech startup 
that I don't know how to build from the ground up. So before coming to Oyster, I built a business bank in Germany. I launched it in Germany and Netherlands and Italy, and I learned what the regulators were looking for. So we took those things and we infused them into Oyster. And when we met with the Santa Fe Bay, we were able to show them how we were completely different in the way we were looking at protecting consumers, infrastructure, security, and compliance with local regulation. And that resulted in Oyster being the only bank, if you look at consumer or, di- or business, that is able to originate what's called as a level four account. It's an unlimited account that we can do digitally, right? So, and, and I would just say, if in the absence of that, you are fighting, as they would call, an upstream battle, right? You have to passionately live the role of a regulator to understand how to build innovative products. Okay. And are there any are there any specific elements that are in common across the countries, having done things abroad, and right? Right now in Mexico, do you notice any type of element or any type of requirement that it's the similar across different geographies? Right. So I think the the most common theme is if you're looking at debit accounts and every regulator worries about it is protection of the customer, right? And in the concept of protection of a customer, regulators start to frame, you know, what I see as somewhere of a hybrid between the CIS, which is a a computer internet security standards and something which is like PCI around how to govern the infrastructure and how to make sure that the customer information is being protected at all times. How is the reporting infrastructure developed? So the banks are always in the regulatory bodies are close to the information and the ability to get that on a periodic basis with a very high level of hygiene. Because if, when you really think about it, the last thing that the regulators want to, uh, to know is a surprise, right? how do you avoid a surprise factor is by protecting what they consider to be the most important asset in the country. Who's that? The customer. How do they protect the customer by providing a perimeter around what that customer protection means, right? Now in every country, there might be a little bit of an adaptation with local bodies that create their own uh, customer protection approach. But at the core of it, it is always about how is the information not you know, going into a place that could then be used to actually attack the customer, right? That's what regulators really care about. In the core, it's building the infrastructure to make sure the the information is really well safeguarded against any kind of cybersecurity attacks that could infiltrate and take the customer information and make the regulator look that they have actually haven't done a very good job in regulating that space, right? When When you really think about it and And again, it's a fine balance. The regulators can go very, very closed or regulators can go very, very open and neither extreme is good. The balance point is what startups have to do to help regulators understand. And that comes from really understanding the domain and showing them how you can get to a balance point. But to answer your point, Hector, it is about the protection of information that is the prime function of a regulator. Okay, great, interesting. That's very, very interesting. So uh, taking into account that and the differences that you have in different countries, how did you decide to establish the corporation? First of all, what type of corporation and how, how, what's your thought process in terms of deciding what type of corporation would you like to establish? And yeah. do you think at some point to establish the corporation 
outside the geography where you operate? Let's say in the U.S.? Yeah, so this is actually a very interesting uh, question. Very great. Actually, it's a great question because I think this is something that um, I've actually spent a lot of time but by accident. So let me, let me you know, go back and historically talk about uh, how I arrived at what we created, Hector. So when I first arrived in, in Mexico, this is way, way back in 2004, 2005, um, I, you know, we were trying to bring PayPal into Mexico. And at that time, PayPal was operating a Singapore entity as far as where it owned the wallets to distribute wallet technology globally. And this was called within PayPal, PPPL, PayPal Private Party Limited, right? But PayPal itself was an American company, had an American uh, C-Corp. And as we were arriving in Mexico, we said, okay, we're going to open up these wallets using Singapore, right? And for those of you who know, Singapore and Mexico have amazing tax treaties with each other. Why? Because Singapore is, in a, is a seaport and Mexico has an amazing uh, sea infrastructure that allows these countries to have really, really good in, in, uh, uh, um, tax treaties in order to enable those kind of economies to scale really well, right? So it, it, it made it easy for PayPal to arrive with a Singapore entity, but we realized very quickly that there was an even better thing that Mexico had, which is NAFTA, right? Uh, Which was created by Pedro Aspe and Bill Clinton. Uh, And this amazing treaty allowed a US company to have a fully owned Mexican subsidiary and operate and move funds between the US side and Mexico and allow the investment of money coming into Mexico to be registered as a capital increase in the asset of the company while allowing the US side to be a fully owned controller of the Mexican company. And the second aspect of having an American company with a Mexican subsidiary is this is the most important part, which is intellectual property, right? And this is something that every investor cares, where is the intellectual property held? So in this case, if you follow this example, the intellectual property is being held at the US company which means the U.S. company can then further move the intellectual property into Ireland, into Luxembourg, into Cayman, into the British Virgin Islands, which have even better intellectual property laws, right? And the third advantage is a tax advantage because every company in a startup phase is looking at tax. And the beautiful thing that Bill Clinton and Pedro Raspe and the president at that time of Mexico created is something called as transfer pricing. What does transfer pricing mean? Transfer pricing means the ability for intellectual property to be created in the U.S., to be held in the U.S., to be moved to Mexico for the use of running the company, but assigning the value of that IP back to the U.S., but writing the IP off as a loss on the U.S. side. So your U.S. company acts as a tax write-off against a fully operational country in Mexico. So imagine the power of that. Your IP is a lot of value. The value is being utilized in the country, but the value is depreciating as far as tax is concerned. And this is called transfer pricing. Transfer pricing means you transfer the cost of the IP back to the country where it originated from and you write that off as a loss, right? Um, Because it's not appreciating in the country, it is actually being operated in another country, right? So if I were to say, this is like one of the advantages that I learned from PayPal, I used it at Clip. Um, and now we have the exact same structure as well within Oyster. 
in terms of having the uh, American company, a Mexican subsidiary, transfer pricing and the and the storage of intellectual property in the U.S. as the company continues to grow and, you know, uh, go into other markets, you know, the intellectual property in that country is is safeguarded as far as like, you know, how it can be used for potential uh, change of control in the future. Okay. So now since you have different entities in different geographies, how important is corporate governance? How do you how do you define the corporate governance within your company, and what are the strategies that you have taken in order to implement it? Yeah, so the way that we um, the way that we approach uh, corporate governance uh, within Oyster, and this is something very similar to uh, what we did at um, at Clip, is um, all the corporate governance is managed by the the board. So we actually have the board oversee. Um, both the U.S. side and the Mexico side. So, so as far as investment vehicle, the U.S. C Corp acts as an investment vehicle, and the Mexico side acts as a essentially operating company that is creating and has its own uh, P&L, right? But the board of directors of the company, which are the investors who invest in the company and who are you know preferred shareholders and independent, oversee both entities as one contiguous vehicle around which we create the corporate governance, right? Uh, what we do differently, and this is something that is something that's very, very important, is we have two independent law firms that manage and stay on the board meeting. So on one side, let's just say as an example, we could have Perkins and Cui or Gunderson Detmer. On the other side, you have Creel or, uh, you know, Case and White to, to manage and to help us understand the different aspects of evolving corporate governance that need to be managed in the country. Um, but as, a, as an entity, it is not separated when it comes to the way that we manage it, right? It's, it's one way that we govern this whole, it's seen as one unibody, uh, even though it has two different bodies as far as the way that the board sees the company. Okay, great, interesting. So yeah. listening at, at what you're saying, I'm assuming that having a good lawyer, it's very important, right? Absolutely. I would say the the best money spent, uh, even though this is very expensive money, is money spent on legal setup. Um, and this is something that, you know, if, you know, I, I think there are aspects of legal setup that are very, as I would say, just in time. And there are aspects of legal setup that have to be well thought through. Um, and that investment in legal enables you to quickly do things like a, uh, a due diligence. And why is, why is it important for due diligence? Because your ability to close that due diligence quickly is a function of how well that legal setup was from the very beginning, right? Because discovering that legal setup is not appropriate um, and essentially having to fix it when investors discover it Uh, essentially arises in what's called as a covenant. This is something that an investor puts into a term sheet as something that you must fulfill uh, in order for them, in order for you to make sure that you are actually satisfying an observation that they have met, right? Uh, and when you have a covenant, you get into something that's, you know, you have this time pressure and it's a, it's a negotiation point between you and the investor. So I would say, a lot of times these legal things come up as covenants. Um, and I generally uh, look at it as saying the time spent 
um, is better off invested earlier on by uh, getting a good legal team. Now, it doesn't mean to say you need to find a top tier legal team, but you definitely need to find a lawyer that is really un- that really understands the startup scene, that knows what where you want to go and what your vision is, because that is the part of the legal uh, entity setup that's very very important. And this is something that's going to keep coming up for me re- over and over again. Your vision is a very important guiding factor from legal to finance to governance. In the absence of it, it is the it is the it is the DNA that binds the organization, right? Uh, your vision is not just something that is a pie in the sky. It is your ability to have uh, thoughtful planning from every function of the company, right? Um, so don't ever have a very short-sighted vision because it actually comes back to bite you over and over and over again uh, versus a really carefully thought-out vision enables people to plan and help you plan better. Okay. So you have gone through different stages in your company. So at the very beginning of your company, did you manage to have the bylaws, the shareholders agreement? And how relevant is for you as a founder to really take care of those documents? So yeah, I would say hygiene at the very beginning is very important. So when Oyster was created, we had a U.S. law firm that <clears throat> created those uh, created those uh, shareholder documents that created the the bylaws, and also because we were uh, getting an investment, uh, and because the investment was imminent, uh, it was very very important to establish those bylaws and the shareholder agreements very very quickly because we knew that the investors were really getting uh, interested in Oyster, so we had to we had to quickly go through. Now, if you don't have an investor doesn't mean to say that you shouldn't establish it. And I would say, no, you should put that in place sooner because uh, especially as you have, when you have founders, um, the, the thing that you don't want to push to the end is having an agreement with your founder or co-founder that you can establish in the company. This is the number one, as they would say, if you read, if you read Fred Wilson, he's a great writer on venture capital and founder equity and how to calculate founder equity and who gets how much. Uh, So please read Fred Wilson. He's an amazing venture capitalist. Um, And, and he talks about the cardinal rule of startups that should not be broken. And the cardinal rule, if you follow the word cardinal is it's really important to have a really good agreement structure with your co-founder. And a lot of startups face this right before an investor is willing to invest and ends up actually blowing up with the investor and your ability to actually fundraise because you are broken. The one thing that investors believe in it's team and market, right? So take the time to have those discussions to establish that. And and it doesn't take a very expensive lawyer. There's very good online, you know, even Stripe Atlas allows you to create companies in the U S very, very simply with their, with their program to establish what the ownership in the company looks like. So this is really, really important because it sets together a precedent that you are well-organized in terms of company building. Okay, interesting. So in, in, in the same line, what would you say are the key elements or, you know, when you have a conflict with shareholders, how do you deal with that? And also how, what are the key elements 
when you sit down on a table and start negotiating the negotiation process with an investor. Yeah. Just to clarify the question, Hector, are you, when you say shareholders, you're talking about, is it a founder? Or are you talking about founder and investor? Yes, founder and, and other BC investors. Right. So I, I, I think, um, listen, the, the, the way that I look at this is that the reason that founders and investors uh, are, usually, um, are usually not on the same page is uh, when things are not so great. Right. Uh, and it's very important to it's very important to take the symptom from the problem. Right. And, the, and when you really go back to it and you unwind what happened um, in a company that's either doing amazing or in a company that is looking to do amazing, investors are 100 percent behind you in terms of, you know, getting to the next point of where you where you want to go as long as. Um, you know, you're on that trajectory. Now, there's a very important lesson in fundraising about the kind of investors you bring in at your seed stage. Most, so there's two, there's two kinks, as they would say, in the chain that can happen. You're bringing in an investor in the seed stage that has such a significant portion of your, that, uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a board member, on your company that can actually be a blocking call for your ability to go and fundraise. And, and this is generally not considered to be a good VC approach, but it happens all the time to founders um, where the VC could block it because they actually are starting to lose equity or lose ownership in the company. And they're threatened by the lack of ownership and what would happen, right? Um, this generally doesn't happen, but it does happen and you should be aware that you know, when you have the board, that you have a really good approach to how you form your core construction of how you can start. So do not have a hung board. Don't have a two-person board. Make sure it's an it's a odd number board and make sure that the important rights of the company around fundraising are well aligned with the investor. So ask the investor the really hard questions. Are you afraid of being diluted? Are you afraid that even though, and you'd be surprised that there are times when companies are on a growth trajectory that investors sometimes are not aligned with the founders because sometimes they feel like the founders should wait longer because they can see a better upside, right? But as a founder and operator, you're in the middle of it. You understand the need of the market and you understand the economic conditions that are in front of you and you have a team to run, Right. So really gauge the investor really, really well, because I see these kinds of things happening in the early stages of the company, right? In the later stages of the company, I see the first problem that I was talking about if the company is not doing well, right? If the company is not doing well, I think it's very important to have a conversation around what is it that the investors want and what is it that you want as you look at the outcome for the company, right? Talk about the outcomes, right? When you talk about the outcomes, you would find that, you know, you and the investors are probably more aligned than misaligned, right? And it's very important to talk about the three to five things that they would like to see arising out of the company, right? Ask them for the time frame. Ask them to be specific, as specific as they can be on the fewest number of things that they would like to see coming out of company ABC, 
write down your specific outcomes that you want to see, then have a discussion on can you actually get alignment on those outcomes and the time frame, right? And if you cannot reach an alignment, then you actually start to see open up with the board and strike and make sure again to have the right number of people on the board because in, in a place like that, you want to make sure that the board is a very good sounding place for you to arrive at what is the right outcomes for the company. And this is very, very important. Outcomes are a very important part of you forming a way for you to have and, and, and educate the board about what is important for the company, right? And, 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 and I'm sorry, I cannot be more specific because if you've read The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz, there is no secret formula that I can give you that's going to arrive at the right conclusion. Because in context, only you can answer that question. But one of the things that you can do to avoid this is, is picking the right venture capitalist to join your company and, and being clear that when you arrive at a hard point, being clear about the outcomes because they joined you for a reason. They are part of this journey because they, they believe in you, right? They believe in the market. They believe in the team. You know, don't assume that their first intention is that they don't trust you or they want to take ownership of the company. If you believe that, then you probably didn't do a very good job vetting that venture capitalist from the very beginning. So give them the benefit of doubt that they are also pushing for their belief in the team, but they want an outcome. Ask them what is the outcome. Don't assume. Okay. Well, that's that's great. Thank you so much. Yeah. So, in terms of the operations of the company, right? Yeah. In the, in the fintech, in a fintech compliance KYC, yeah. it's it's very very relevant. Yeah. How do you manage a compliance internally, and how do you permit that culture in the whole team? Yeah. So, this is uh, this is something that um, we spend a lot of time in. How do you how do you address this? Is you you show the company by by leading, right? So as an entrepreneur, as a founder, you are always a leader, right? And how, what do leaders do? Leaders show by example. And what does it mean to show by example? Employee number two who was hired at Oyster was the chief compliance officer. Why is that important? Because it is setting the drumbeat and the rhythm of who Oyster will be. If you hired a marketing person, you will realize that the drumbeat of Oyster will be about marketing, marketing, marketing. But if you hired a compliance officer, the team will understand that Oyster and the company is around a compliance aspect, is around the fact that everything that we do goes to the compliance officer, right? Everything in Oyster, everybody knows that if it's not approved by Mott, it cannot go to the market, Right. And it is not that they're talking to Mar, my compliance officer, after the fact. Compliance is the very first function that they talk to, right? So much that we actually have the best compliance and checks in Oyster from Know Your Business and Know Your Customer that our partners, and I can tell you who our partner is, Cacao, actually use our dashboard to find out if actually it's fully vetted in order to approve an account, right? Mm -hmm. We have gone the compliance function to the level that partners think that we're the gold and platinum standard of compliance, right? That is the way that you lead by example, right? You lead by 
you know, not making your compliance function an afterthought by making it a clear, you know, forethought in everyone's mind. And when you make it a forethought, it would actually be that the team will fall into line because they realize how important this person is. Okay. So I, I would say that is, that's a way that, and, and Amazon is a very similar function. Uh, this is not just an oyster, you know, an Amazon compliance is part of every squad. Uh, you don't actually release uh, a feature from a squad without a compliance person being uh, a member of the squad. Okay. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. So you're the founder of the company. You've been an entrepreneur for many years. What would you say are your final recommendations for anyone who is trying to build a fintech, a startup in terms of corporate governance, in terms of regulation, dealing with these issues? What, what are your final thoughts? One, don't rush to be an entrepreneur. Um, uh, please don't rush. Um, uh, there's, there's, um, please take the time to build your knowledge. Uh, please take the time to experiment. And you don't need to experiment. You know, you can experiment on your own time, right? experimentation is your greatest gift that you can give to yourself, right? And when I say don't rush, I mean acquire skills. Acquire not wealth, acquire capital, human capital. At Oyster, I have 60% of my employees have, fo have followed me from four startups that I've been working on in the last, in the last 10 to 15 years, right? So these are people that have been continuing to follow me from startup to startup to startup, right? Why is that important? Because a startup is a fabric, right? Why is that a fabric? Because you need to be able to trust people will operate to the same drumbeat that you want to operate, that you hold yourself accountable to. How does that happen? By actually learning and coexisting, right? So the whole time you have a vision of what you want to create, collect human capital, tell them your vision, you know, enlist them in your vision, enable them to see your passion. And let me tell you, even if you fail in a startup, they will follow you in the next startup and the next startup and the next startup. So those are the first two things I would say. Have a clear vision, enlist people in your vision, show your passion, show your dedication. If you haven't seen Michael Jordan's movie, The, the, the Final Dance, please watch that series on Netflix. It is a, a classic startup movie. It is about dedication and leading by example. If you don't play hard, your team will never play hard. So lead from that same exact point of view that you have to be the hardest working person on the team. Lastly, don't take anything for granted. Everything you're doing in a startup is on purpose from your venture capitalist to your team to everyone is there for a purpose and a reason. Be clear about that purpose. Your venture capitalists are there because they are an invitation by you to help form your family, right? Mm -hmm. and, and really do that process really thoroughly and everything is built on purpose and then things are going to flow. And the last one I would say is be clear about what you're creating as a culture, right? Because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you can have all of this done, but as they would say, Culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? And it eats your company for lunch and everything else for dinner, right? 
Um, so be clear about your culture and what is it that you want to build? Because at the end of the day, that is a language of how your company unites around you and around each other, right? Um, once you do that, you can find, you know, you can, you can build a domain knowledge and if you're talking about fintech, and I'm going to now step, step into the fintech thought, fintech is about domain expertise, right? If you're doing a startup that is not a fintech startup, or if you're doing any biotech, fintech, insure tech, med tech, these are deeply domain specific companies, right? Take the time to understand the domain, become a subject matter expert, spend time with a subject matter expert, make that subject matter expert your co-founder. Don't assume the subject matter expertise is there and it, you know, don't take it for granted. It is there for a reason, right? These things are tribal knowledge areas. You're, you're, you need to be able to take tribal knowledge and move it forward through innovation, right? But if you don't go tribal, or the other word is gorilla, if you cannot go gorilla tactics to understand it, you will never overcome the point of friction, right? So these are the points that I will leave you with uh, in terms of what you should think about uh, in a fintech or any one of those deeply uh, disruptable areas versus general startup things that you should be keeping in mind. It's, those are those are great thoughts. Thank you so much, Vilash. You're welcome. Today and sharing your knowledge with, with all of us. Thank you once again. No, thank you again for the time and it's a pleasure. Thank you, Hector.